Hi, good day and welcome to About Patterson, a podcast about the past, present, and future of our hometown, Patterson, New Jersey. As all Pattersonians know, Patterson was founded by our first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1791. Hamilton's vision for Patterson was as America's first planned industrial city, but even Hamilton couldn't have seen what Patterson would become. Patterson led the Industrial Revolution where Sam Colt manufactured his first revolvers, John Ryle manufactured America's first silk, Thomas Rogers built the first American locomotives, and John Holland tested the world's first modern submarine. But Patterson isn't just about the Industrial Revolution, it's about us, the people of Patterson. It's about our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents who came to America and settled in Patterson for a better life. We all know Patterson today isn't the Patterson we grew up in, but something is happening that no one saw coming. After decades of decline, a miracle happened. Two Pattersonians, former Mayor Bill Pascrell in the House of Representatives and Frank Lautenberg in the United States Senate, passed a bill that was signed by President Barack Obama, making our Great Falls District a national park, and in my view, changed Patterson's future for the better. This is a podcast about Patterson, the historic Patterson we learned about, the Patterson we grew up in, and the Patterson that, in my opinion, is emerging from the ashes. So thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, welcome to About Patterson. My name is Ed Franks, and I'm from Patterson, New Jersey. This week's episode is about the 1966 murder of Judy Lee Cavanaugh, a Clifton housewife. I've decided to include this in my Patterson podcast because even though the original crime occurred in Clifton, there is a linking homicide in Patterson. The case was also tried in Patterson and, of course, carried by the Patterson Evening News and the Morning Call. Judy Lee Cavanaugh was a 21-year-old housewife living in a small two-bedroom apartment with her husband, Paul, in the Franklin Garden Apartments at number 90 Hazel Street, Clifton, New Jersey. On the night of February 24th, Judy drove her husband, Paul, to work, and after dropping him off, disappeared. Eighteen days later, her body was found. Naturally, the investigation focused on her husband, Paul, but as the case wore on, things became more complicated. There were news reports about wife swapping and even a counterfeit ring. This, then eight months later, another shocking murder. On Thursday morning, October 6, 1966, a low-level mob bookie named Gabriel Johnny the Walk to Franco heard a knock on his front door at 297 Fifth Avenue, Patterson. Neighbors witnessed two men on his doorstep. When DeFranco stepped onto the porch, one man grabbed him from behind while the other slit his throat. Johnny the Walk bled out. A couple of days later, across the top of page one of the morning call, they reported the following headline, Photos linked DeFranco to Kavanaugh witness. The article read, The Judy Kavanaugh murder investigation took another bizarre twist yesterday when photographs of a central figure in the grand jury probe turned up in the pocket of Gabriel DeFranco a suspected counterfeiter slashed to death on a Patterson street. Two of the pictures found in the dead man's pocket were of a key witness in the 21-year-old Clifton housewife's murder. 
Suddenly, the murder of Judy Lee Kavanaugh and Johnny the Walk DeFranco became linked, taking the case in a whole new direction. The Kavanaugh-DeFranco murders would make national news. This is the story of the Kavanaugh-DeFranco murders. I've decided to experiment with AI, so the balance of today's podcast will be in an artificial intelligence voice. Let me know whether you like it. Judy Lee Kavanaugh was a 21-year-old housewife living in a small two-bedroom apartment with her husband Paul, in the Franklin Garden Apartments at 90 Hazel Street, Clifton, New Jersey. Hazel Street is a busy thoroughfare that runs between Route 46 and the Garden State Parkway. The Franklin Garden Apartments were very nice, well-kept two-story garden apartments, with tall pillars decorating the fronts of each building. On the night of Thursday, February 24, 1966 Mother Nature dropped 10 inches of snow on northern New Jersey and the following day the newspaper headline called The Storm, a 10-inch crippler. Just below that headline was a second headline. Police seek housewife, 21. The article went on to describe the missing Mrs. Kavanaugh as 5 feet tall, weighing 105 pounds with hazel eyes and red hair. When she was last seen she was wearing tan slacks, a blue blouse, an olive coat and black shoes. At about 1 a.m. Judy Kavanaugh was roused from her sleep by her husband Paul to take him to work. Together Paul and Judy piled into her black 1962 Corvair and headed through the snow to the Garfield Two Guys from Harrison, where Paul parked his trucks. Paul had a small delivery service delivering newspapers for a local newspaper publishing company, Matzner Publishing in Wayne. According to Paul, Judy dropped him off and left to return to their apartment. After a 16-hour day, Paul returned home at 5.30 p.m. to find his wife, and her car missing. Paul called around trying to find his wife. At 8 p.m. Paul received a call from the Newark police telling him that his wife's black Corvair was found abandoned in an industrial area in Newark. Earlier in the afternoon, William Kukin, an engineer employed at a Newark industrial plant at 250 Badger Avenue, said he had noticed the Corvair parked outside the building when he arrived at work at 3.30. Later, when he looked out a window a little before 8 p.m., the car was still there, but this time had smoke pouring from the inside. Kukin called the police. It was only a matter of minutes before Newark police and fire arrived. What they found was a small fire smoldering in the front seat, and a strong smell of gasoline. The Newark Fire Department quickly extinguished the fire. Inside the car police found a singed woman's jacket, and a road map on the front seat. They also found a pair of tan slacks, a pocketbook and an umbrella. Curiously there was a 16-foot length of clothesline, and a baby blanket inside the car. Firemen traced the ownership of the vehicle with the registration in the glove box, and contacted Paul. A patrol car picked him up and took him to the Newark location where he identified the car, and the items in the car as his wife's. Two important items were missing, Judy's car keys and her driver's license. This kicked off what would become one of New Jersey's most sensational murder cases. The former Judith Lee Marchione was the daughter of Leo and Emily Marchione. Leo and Emily lived just a block away from the Kavanaugh apartment. Judy Marchione and Paul Kavanaugh graduated from Clifton High School and the couple married a short time later. They had no children. Paul was self-employed as an independent delivery driver for Matzner Publishing, a Wayne newspaper publisher, and delivered newspapers from late at night into the afternoon. Homicide detectives of the Newark Detective Bureau, and the Clifton Police Department began a two-pronged investigation into the mysterious disappearance of the 21-year-old Clifton housewife. That Friday night Paul Kavanaugh was interrogated at length by Newark detectives and released. At the time, detectives identified Paul as a distraught young husband. The following day the Herald News reported that the search had widened. Police were canvassing all empty apartments, basements, 
garages and laundry rooms in the Franklin Garden Apartments hoping to find evidence of Judy's disappearance. Nothing was found. Police also searched a nearby wooded area, adjacent to the Daughters of Miriam home for the aged. While waiting for the lab report results, the police followed numerous phone-in leads hoping one would lead to something. Paul Cavanaugh was questioned and agreed to a lie detector test. Paul's brother John reported that Paul had moved out of the apartment so he could get some sleep. The Cavanaugh apartment had been inundated with visitors, friends and family coming to offer support. Paul's brother John stayed in the apartment just in case there was a phone call regarding the whereabouts of Judy. Newspapers reported that the police were following an enigmatic trail of evidence, and that lab reports would be available later in the day hoping to shed some light on the case. Hundreds of phone leads came in, many of them false. A bus driver told the police that a woman resembling Judy Kavanaugh rode on his bus that Friday. But his description described a woman with blonde hair. Mrs. Kavanaugh's hair is chestnut-colored. Another woman phoned Judy Kavanaugh's father and said she spoke with Judy in New York City. She said she would call police the following day. No call ever came. An unidentified woman turned up in Pittsburgh resembling Judy Kavanaugh. Police followed up only to learn the woman had amnesia. In Walpack, New Jersey, police thought they had Judy and called the Kavanaugh apartment saying they had a woman in custody, that fit the description. Unfortunately this was another woman with amnesia. Added to these false reports, there were numerous crank calls, some cruel. Hundreds of leads were coming in and Clifton detectives said they had the entire department running down leads. Thus far nothing has panned out but we welcome all calls, a police spokesperson said. Eleven days after Judy's disappearance, on March 7, a sad-faced Paul Kavanaugh sat on his sofa in his apartment and said, in my heart, I'm convinced that Judy was grabbed by someone as she was about to return to the apartment. The young husband emphasized his belief by pointing to the closet in their apartment. The clothes hangers were full of the young woman's clothing. I don't buy that amnesia theory, Paul said flatly. And if she had wanted to take off, she would never have left all her clothing here. There's some emergency money in the house, and she made a deposit at the bank the day before she disappeared. She never touched it. Kavanaugh was convinced that Judy, a pretty housewife with hazel eyes and red hair, did not disappear in Garfield where he last saw her, and didn't believe she would abandon her black Corvair in Newark. It would be very hard for a stranger to talk to Judy whenever she was alone in the car, Paul said. She always kept the doors locked. If she had stopped for a red light, and someone had walked up to the car and tapped on the window she would have taken off, red light or no. During a Patterson Evening News interview, a downstairs neighbor, Ricky Kavanaugh, no relation, came into the apartment and said, I heard Paul and Judy leave the apartment around 1 a.m. Thursday morning, Kavanaugh said. And I was still awake about a half hour later when I heard a car pull up in front of the apartments. I'm convinced as any person can be it was Judy. I heard the noise of a bumper slamming into another bumper and went to the window. My two poodles also heard the noise, and began to bark loudly. I saw a small car, like the one Judy drove, trying to back into the place where she always parked but without success. It was too dark to make out the driver. Paul said, the Newark police gave me two separate lie detector tests, and they promised to analyze the contents of the car and let me know what they find. I'm still waiting. Six days after Paul's Patterson evening news interview, on Saturday March 13, about 3.25 in the afternoon John Anderson, 40 years old, of 84 Genesee Avenue, Patterson and Peter Backer, 30 years old, of 24 Comfort PL, Clifton, were walking their dogs along the northbound parkway ramp to Broad Street when they spotted the body of a woman. She was partially clothed, lying face down, in a thicket just a few yards from the path. The two men ran down the bank towards the parkway and stopped a car driven by off-duty patrolman Raymond Carpenter, who drove to a nearby phone to call police. 
In the meantime State Trooper George Lindsay saw the men on the ramp, stopped to question them, and was told of the discovery of the body. Police were sure they found the missing housewife, Judy Kavanaugh. According to police, Mrs. Kavanaugh was found wearing only a blouse. She was nude from the waist down. Nearby police found a glove and her eyeglasses. There was also a three-foot length of clothesline, and a pair of shoes. A pair of underpants were found under the body. The body was found one-half mile from the Kavanaugh apartment and taken to Kent's funeral home. Police summoned Clifton firemen to the scene and a thorough search was made of the entire area for any additional clues to her death. Paul Kavanaugh was picked up at a friend's house around 5 p.m., and taken to police headquarters and questioned. At 7 p.m. he was taken to Kent's funeral home where he identified the body as his wife, Judy Kavanaugh. Police brought Paul back to police headquarters. An autopsy was performed by William Van Furen, Passaic County Assistant Medical Examiner. When Van Furen, at 11 p.m. announced that the cause of death was a cerebral hemorrhage, Paul Kavanaugh was still at police headquarters. While Paul Kavanaugh was being questioned by the police, a news reporter called Mrs. Kavanaugh's father, Leo Marchioni of 5 Fitzgerald Avenue, he didn't want to talk to the news, but he came out onto his front porch and said, we have heard no news. If you want any information, call the police. The headlines of the following day cleared up the cause of death. The Patterson Evening News headline read, Bullet killed missing wife, finds semi-nude body in wooded section off Parkway in Clifton, Mrs. Kavanaugh is identified by her husband. The article went on, Assistant Prosecutor Joseph N. Donatelli revealed today that pretty 21-year-old Mrs. Judith Kavanaugh of 90 Hazel Street, whose body was found here Sunday afternoon, was killed by a bullet fired into her head. The belated announcement confirmed rumors circulating through the night that there was no evidence that Mrs. Kavanaugh had been sexually molested, although one official close to the case noted that it would have been difficult to determine this because she had been dead for two weeks. The article went on to say that Paul Kavanaugh is president of Kavanaugh Carriers, a firm with three trucks and two drivers. Kavanaugh provides delivery services for Matzner Publications of Wayne, earning about $10,000 a year, according to Harold Matzner, assistant publisher. Paul is a terrific guy, Matzner told the news. He's phenomenal and really going places. The murder investigation moved into high gear in the search for the gun that had killed the pretty 21-year-old housewife. At this time we have no prime suspects, detectives said. Meanwhile the family made arrangements for Judy's private funeral. Because of the misinformation about the cause of death officials called in New York City's chief medical examiner to oversee the autopsy and try to pinpoint the exact time of death. The police announcement that Judy's body was in fairly good condition suggested the possibility that she may not have been killed on the night of February 24th. Between February 24th, and when the body was found, weather reports said there were days of snow and rain with temperatures in the 50s. Police surmised that had Judy been killed on the 24th her body would have been badly decomposed. On Monday Paul Kavanaugh was released after hours of questioning. He was released on $10,000 bail as a material witness. Police explained that the high bail was because Paul was the last person to see his wife alive. A bullet slug was removed from the brain of Judy Kavanaugh and sent to the state crime lab in Trenton in an attempt to learn the caliber of the bullet and whether it was fired from a pistol of a rifle. The police did say they were verifying Paul Kavanaugh's movements on the night of February 24th. Paul's story was that his wife drove him to the Garfield Two Guys at 1 a.m. in order to pick up a load of paper. Kavanaugh said after his wife left him he picked up his truck, and made a half-dozen deliveries, including three in Clifton and one in Hillside. Police are double-checking these deliveries. The Marchionis were now speaking with the press. At least I know now that my daughter's not being held prisoner. Or being molested, said Mrs. Marchioni, her eyes brimming with tears. She's not suffering anymore. She was a good girl. Why, oh God, why did this happen?
Thanks for joining me today for part one of the Kavanaugh-DeFranco murders of 1966. I'd like your feedback on this AI version of About Patterson. Either post it on Facebook or email me via the website About Patterson. Thanks so much. Have a great week.